Welcome back to the Prose Tinted Glasses John Green series. This is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend that you do that now. But with that being said, we're just going to jump right back into where we left off. Anyway, um, I did not ever read or see The Fault in Our Stars because by 2012, when this came out, I had felt like like my John Green era was done. Mm-hmm. Wait, I do just want to say, I think that the quirky character interest from Paper Towns was just Margot. I think Quentin's special interest was just Margot. I saw that. I and even funnier. Special interest was like being friends with people in band, but being unable to be in band. <laughs> Actually, that's a really good point. I think that that's a better one. Um, like, but yeah, no. so I just wanted to call that out because I've been doing the, the quirky interest of the of the novel, so... Yeah, and I keep skipping straight to the next novel and not giving you a chance, but... No, it's okay. It's because I kind of put them I put them out of order on the outline, so it's fine. I see why you're doing it. <laughs> uh, so... Anyway, yeah, so you, you have... Do you have, like, literally no impression of The Fault of Our Stars? Like, what do you know about it? I know general media criticism and, and like, things about that. And then I know that um, Shailene Woodley... Shailene? Shailene. Shailene was in it and that it was, like... Just, let's see, that was 2014. When did Divergent come out? Well, no, that was Secret Life of the American Teenager then. Mm. Oh, man, I loved that show. What a dumb show. So, so that's the thing. I, like, hated that show so much. Which is correct. The correct opinion. Yeah, so the Secret Life of the American Teenager was, like, 2008, and then... 2008 to... And it had, like... Oh, man, it went to 2013, so... Yeah, and then Divergent came out in 2014, which actually is, like, about the same time that yeah. The Fault in Our Stars came out. I don't know. I don't know what it was. If it was still just, like, absolute hate because the, like, three episodes I watched of Secret Life of the American Teenager were just so incredibly fucking awful to me. Or <laughs> which is, again, correct opinion. Um, it or looks if it like was Divergent just... came out in March and The Fault in Our Stars came out in May of 2014. Maybe I was just, like, I like Divergent, and so any other media with, like, similar people or similar things is is something I hate now, which, like, I definitely briefly did with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings when they came out at similar times. I was like, no, I'm a Harry Potter person. That means I can't like Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. I was wrong. Yeah, obviously. But Yeah, I I mean, I've read them. I've seen them. I'm obviously wrong. I'm just saying. I did go through a phase where I was like, you can't like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. You have to pick. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I did read it when it came out, and I also have seen the movie. I did not reread this one because I, I started to, like, four times, and I just could not, I couldn't do a sad cancer book right now. I just couldn't couldn't do that. It was too sad, too cancery, was not interested. Um, but we'll go through, like, a, a little bit more of an in-depth, um, not a very in-depth recap, but just since you haven't read it. But So it's about uh, Hazel Grace Lancaster, which is Shailene Woodley. Um, and she is a 16-year-old with cancer who meets Augustus Waters, who is Ansel Elgort, um, at a cancer patient support group. Um, he has an amputated leg from his cancer, and he's actually in remission. And he's there to support his friend Isaac, who has eye cancer. And he and Hazel just, like, immediately bond over being, like, kind of pompous, over-intellectualized teenagers with cancer. Um, and they agree to, like, read each other's favorite novels. 
and Hazel's favorite is called An Imperial Affliction, and it's about a main character with cancer. And the way it ends is, like, really, like, sudden and abrupt, as if the protagonist has, like, died in the middle of telling the story. And Augustus is like, what the heck? And so they talk about it. And Hazel explains that the author, whose name is Peter Van Houten, um, like, after the book was published, he just, like, fucked off to Amsterdam and hasn't been heard from since. So they kind of decide to start a mission to track down Peter Van Houten, and they get in touch with his assistant, who, like, orchestrates a trip to Amsterdam for them through, like, the fictional version of Make-A-Wish in the novel. Um, And they get there, and they meet the author, and he's just, like, this really mean, hostile alcoholic, and it's revealed that, like, the assistant, like, set up the whole thing and didn't even really, like, tell the author because she thought it would be good for him. Um, And... You know, it's just a bad experience. So then uh, Hazel and Augustus go to the Anne Frank house where they have their first kiss, which, by the way, have you ever been to the Anne Frank house? There is not. Um, Okay, I I would never, ever say this. Well, anyone who had tried to who would have tried to tell me this, I would have ignored. But like, if you go to Amsterdam, you can probably skip the Anne Frank house. It is a very long line. It's just it's like kind of cool to see but it like takes forever and you're just like marching single file in a line through this attic which is also it is much bigger than i thought um that it was but it's just like took like six hours for like a 20 minute exhibit i don't know um but anyway uh there's no feasible way they could have had privacy to kiss in the anne frank house i say as someone who has been there also it's just like it seems like, like in retrospect, like looking back at that super setting weird, for the first yeah. case, like, yeah, super weird. And definitely super a ton weird. of valid criticism has been made to John Green for putting their first kiss there. Yep, 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 yep. Um, anyway, and then they go back to a hotel and lose their virginity to each other. And then um, Augustus reveals that his cancer has returned. Um, and this is another, like, core memory where he says he's, like, lit up like a fucking Christmas tree on the scans, um, which was eh, not great. And they go back to the United States. He throws, like, a pre-funeral, and he has um, Hazel and his friend Isaac give eulogies um, just so that he gets to experience his funeral, which I think was kind of a refrain throughout the novel that, like, you don't get to experience that. Um, And then Mm -hmm. he dies, which was very sad. And then at his real funeral, um, the author shows up and apologizes to Hazel, and she does not forgive him. Go, Hazel. She learns that Augustus wrote an obituary for her that basically is, like, encouraging her to, like, keep living despite, like, the possibility of getting hurt and that one of the great, like, beauties of life is that you have the um, ability to choose who you let in and, like, who gets to hurt you. Um, And he ends it with saying, like, he thinks that he made a good choice. I'm going to start crying. This book is so sad. I'm realizing, Um, like, as you're summarizing this, that I probably also didn't read this because it is a big sad, and I don't like to read sad novels. I refuse to read Marley and Me. I refuse to read Me Before You. Like, I'm not reading these books, okay? I don't need to be sad. It's so sad. He So he's, like, he ends the letter with, like, you get to (laughs) choose who you let in that can make you that can hurt you and I made a good choice and then like the novel ends with like Hazel saying that she also made a good choice um so anyway very sad cancer book yeah no I can understand like not wanting to reread this I'm sure it's good and like the the one moment aside um like there are probably really good things made in this and I but like yeah I just I don't like reading big sad books I guess Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it's very, it's a very good book. I remember enjoying it a lot. I just could not, I couldn't do it again. I almost got choked up reading a summary that I wrote to Bailey. So, 
you know, one of those things. Yeah, um, and I, I think this novel does get away even more that from, like, the... This is not a novel about, like, the regular teen experience, I guess, is mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. And so it doesn't have those shades of manic pixie dream girl and trope busting necessarily. Yeah, and also, like, I don't know if you know about Esther Earle, um, who she was a teen with cancer that John Green made friends with through, I think, like, the nerd fighter experience. Um, and she was just, like, a big member of the community, and she, like, went to VidCons and stuff, and so she made friends with John and Hank. And um, so I'm going to cry again. <laughs> but this book was, like, largely inspired by her, her and her life. Um, and she, she gotcha. passed away in 2010. Right before it came out. Well, damn it. Well, yeah, well, yeah cause I she guess was to be inspired by it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I get, I get that. I like, I just like, she didn't get the chance to read the obituary. You know what I mean? Children, like, children should not have cancer is my opinion. Look, no one should have cancer. Certainly no one. Yeah. No <laughs> one should have cancer, cancer, especially not children. Fuck cancer. Uh, yeah, I guess this one, I think, is is probably, yeah, like, Looking for Lasko is big, but The Fault in Our Stars, especially with it getting that adaptation less about less mm -hmm. than two years after it came out, was just so, so big. And I remember yeah, this was, it being... I think, maybe his biggest book. I remember being old enough to, like, look back at, like, when I read Looking for Lasko and seeing people, like, read it for the first time and being like, oh, my God, it's so good, and being like... Yeah, we done new. <laughs> you know, just a little bit of self-righteousness about, like, having read something when it came out, even though the people saying that were probably, like, maybe six or seven when it came out, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is definitely the one, especially with the moment that Shailene Woodley was having with Divergent yeah, and Secret Life of the, the American Teenager having just ended... So I, I don't have a lot to say about this one. I don't think that it has... I haven't read it, so I don't have as many, like, input things to put in on it. Mm -hmm. I, I'll just... I'll end with, like, the, the character quirk that I picked out, which is that... I don't know if you've seen this again, because you don't know much about the book, but um, Augustus does this thing where he, like, holds a cigarette between his teeth, but doesn't smoke it. That's his quirk. But, like, the thing... Uh, Hazel, like, calls him out on it and is like, smoking's not cute. And he's like, I don't actually smoke. See... I didn't actually pull up this quote, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wing it. But he goes, um, see, you take the thing that can do the killing and you put it between your teeth, but then you don't actually give it the ability to kill you. Um, and so that's his uh, quirky teen cringe over intellectualism. Yeah, over intellectualism definitely sounds right. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> I can see where it was probably, like, impactful and, like, poignant for the character, but, like, in out of the context of, like, reading the book or having any nostalgia or emotional connection to it. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh, that is that is cringe. Well, yeah, I, I can see it as, like, he doesn't have control over much of his life because of the cancer, and so he's like, well, I can have control over whether or not this cigarette kills me for sure. Right, well, that's what I mean. Like, within the context of it, I'm sure it makes more sense, but since I have not read the, the, the book and don't really care to like it just mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. so funny out of that context yeah for sure so um all right we've done our quirky things so that i guess means it's it's for turtles now it is for turtles now um and this is the way that you were talking earlier about 
thinking you had not read Paper Towns, um, and then it turned out that you totally had. I like I remember getting Turtles all the way down, and I remember starting it, but that was in my peak era of like reading physical books was too hard, and I hadn't really discovered audiobooks yet. Um, so I thought that I had never finished it, uh, but then I reread it a couple weeks ago, and I absolutely had finished it, and I don't know why I thought I hadn't. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's fair. I don't know. Uh, also, because I don't, I don't know, I don't remember it that well, to be honest with you. I just remember that I read it for a book club, and we had a discussion at a brewery about it. And I remember, like, mm. being super excited. And, and when we were talking about, like, the next month's book being like, this book comes out, I want to read it. Like, this is my vote. Don't mention other titles to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Did you, you didn't reread it for... No, I did this. not. Okay, that's okay. I'm I'm going through my own phase of reading books is really hard. Mm-hmm. D- did I read fair. nine books in seven days on vacation? Yes, and then I returned to real life and was like, oh vacation yeah. Vacation hours are different. Vacation time doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, Turtles All the Way Down is about a teen girl with OCD, um, and she has a best friend who writes Star Wars fan fiction, and uh, she was childhood friends with a billionaire's son, and then that billionaire goes missing one day, and she and her f- and there is a one hundred thousand dollar reward put out for any information or for finding him. So Aza and her friend Daisy decide to try and go after the the reward, and she um reconnects with her childhood friend who's the son and they start dating and then she has some panic attacks where she drinks hand sanitizer because of her OCD like her main manifestation of her OCD is a fear of the human microbiome and so she spends a lot of time afraid that she is going to get a disease particularly one called C. diff that's going to kill her and so her OCD like convinces her to drink hand sanitizer which is bad for you turns out um so she goes to the hospital and i don't know there's like trials and tribulations she ends up like breaking up with her friend making up with her friend um eventually she and the boy also break up and then she finds his father dead in a sewer system um and has to sort of come to terms with like what that means for for her for her friend for um, also the the billionaire leaves all of his money to his pet tuatara which is like a lizard kind of um because he had people studying the lizard because i guess it like lives on like its lifespan is really long and so he had people studying it to um discover the secret to eternal life or whatever so he leaves all of his money to a lizard and none to his two sons so me very curious i looked up what a tutara is and they're distinctly not a lizard they are a i said lizard ish i know of a distinct lineage and i'm fascinated now i'm completely sidetracked by the (laughs) the lineage and they're the only remaining extant species so anyway, um, in case you wanted a quick biology side note, I, I mean, C. diff is a terrifying disease. Like I don't get me wrong. Um, and this is def- this book is one that John Green says was 
definitely um, a little more real for him as he has OCD as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's talked about how personal it was for him to write and how important it was for him to, like, try and communicate to people who don't have OCD, like, how terrible it can be and how intrusive it can be and how hard it can be to live with. Um, And I definitely think he did a really good job of making it feel accessible and also, like, terrifying, which I'm sure it is for the people that have it. Oh, yeah, the anxiety spiral, like, while reading the scene where as it starts to drink hand sanitizer is, like, a very emotionally powerful scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I remember we discussed that during the book club, that it was like, wow, this is written in a way that, you know, is very, you feel it. Mm-hmm. And he does a really good job with Aza's inner monologue where she's like, she's spiraling and she's so anxious, but she's also like realizing how ridiculous it is. Like she knows that she shouldn't drink hand sanitizer, but like she can't not do it because what if she gets sick from the C. diff? But like she knows it's going to hurt her, but like really she has to do it. Um, it's very, it's a very powerful, it's very powerfully written, I think. I agree. And I think that it also that book obviously being what 12 years later than his first book shows a lot of growth in his writing at least in my oh, amateur opinion of just the way everything is presented also being from like the nearby area having a book be in like Indianapolis which is obviously where John Green lives like we know this mm-hmm. but it was still like fun to be like oh my gosh I know where they're talking about because I've been to that area like mm-hmm. so that was that was good. Um, I actually don't I don't have like super like like I said earlier, I devoured it, but I don't actually have any super strong feelings with it because there's no nostalgia associated with it. It was just a good book that was well written by a well-known author. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I, I didn't have much of a memory from the first time I read it, but I did. I cried really hard when I was finishing this book, like really, really hard. Uh, and I think it had to do with like First of all, the way that the story was framed a little bit was as if Aza was sort of telling the story from the future to where she had, like, gotten a little bit more of a handle on her OCD and her anxiety. And she was talking about, like, you always remember, like, your first love, like, even if it doesn't last. And, like, you always remember, like, the moments that, like, made you who you are. And it was just a really, like, interesting and introspective way to handle it I don't I feel like I didn't like an extra bad job of recapping this one but this is one of I think maybe his most powerful books Um, and I also think it's interesting showing how he's grown and but also how he's like continued to hone his craft in terms of like an authentic teen experience an authentic teen friendship um the part that stands out to me the most is that Aza's best friend Daisy writes this Star Wars fan fiction and is like really like a prolific and like popular fan fiction author and Aza has just like never read it and she finally goes back and reads it and realizes that one of the characters is basically her and is not like a flattering picture of her like Daisy writes about how like this friend with basically space OCD like ruins everything and like makes their life harder and you know that is a very real outlet for a teen who's struggling with something that their friend is struggling with I feel like 
Yeah, it, it felt so real because it's like Daisy clearly still loves Aza a lot, but like Aza's issues affect Daisy, right? Like, and you can love someone very, very deeply and very truly and still struggle with the harm that they bring into your life. Right. And, you know, teenagers don't have the same level of outlet and contextualizing as adults mm-hmm. do, like you said earlier. So it's one of those outlets is going to be something like the fan fiction. It just so happens that Daisy is like a prolific and like well-known fanfic author and that this this portrayal of her friend, this outlet is is widely consumed. Mm-hmm. That would be very hurtful. Yeah, and so they have to deal with like that hurt, but still they still like come back together because they do still love each other and it's a it's a really like raw and visceral way for them to kind of attack their issues that I thought was very true to like teenage them. Yeah, I'm sure if I go back and reread it, I will probably feel more emotional about it than I did the first time. Mhm. Probably. Uh, or, I mean, we also we also know that I'm just an emotional crybaby, so I cry at everything. Yeah, and I think that there's only been, like, a few books that I've cried from. Like, crying in H Mart, definitely. Um, I think I cried with um, Razorblade Tears. Yeah. But, like, not, not many. But as established, like, I won't read well-known sad books, so... Yeah. Um, I think, oh, I did cry in one single Diana Gabaldon book. And it's kind <laughs> of a spoiler, so I don't want to say why. Okay, you can if you want, because I won't remember, but... The dog dies. Oh, I think you, I feel like you've told me this before and I had forgotten, so I will forget yeah. again. But um, ever- I don't, I don't do well with dog death. No, I don't either. That's what I mean is like, this was sad and it was like an emotional moment or whatever, but it was like, it is far from the most impactful death in this series. Like, but it's a dog. Uh, yeah, no, like it is far from the most impactful death in the series. Like there are a lot of far more emotional deaths and I did not cry during them, but yeah, it's the dog. So anyway, sorry to everyone who hasn't read those books, but like, there's a lot of, there's a lot that happens. Like you'll forget there's more than one dog. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And is there a quirky turtles all the way down? Um, I mean, sort like in a way, I feel just like Aza's OCD in general is her quirk, but I also feel like you can't just like call OCD a quirk. But mm-hmm. I also also sort of feel like it recontextualizes a lot of the previous quirks in his work as sort of like manifestations of. OCD, um, whether that was intentional or not. I think it's definitely a, a parallel to like how um, how interested like their like micro niche interests were in some of the books. But um, other than that, I don't think there's like a, a quirk quirk unless we're talking about like Daisy's Star Wars fanfic, I guess. No, I was going to say, I, I think I agree with you that you like can't call the OCD a quirk, but it certainly is a parallel in some ways to like the obsessions previous characters have had Mm -hmm. um because yeah it's like i I think with pudge it feels the most compulsive for him like spitting out those quotes Mm -hmm. and i use compulsive pretty lightly like it's obviously not anywhere near the same level of like actual compulsion but Mm -hmm. he, he just like does it and i don't know about the anagrams 
Um, so yeah, it, it like it is interesting to look at it from that lens, but I don't know that it was intentional, especially given that Turtles All the Way Down was such a personal book for John Green. It would be mm-hmm. hard to say what that is. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> Turtles All the Way Down um, is being adapted into an HBO Max movie currently. Um, I think yes. they're either they either have recently wrapped filming or they are wrapping filming soon. But yeah, yeah, I would I would assume that they are wrapping soon. They've been filming for a while. They've been all over. They were like in Applebee's by my house the other day. Yeah. I think I was messaging you like, oh my God, John Green is out in Applebee's because he, he recorded either a TikTok or a Vlogbrothers post from like the fucking like Greenway behind the Applebee's. That's so funny. Um, I still think you should have chased him down. But Well, okay. So I, I was going to say like my inner, my inner like young fangirl came out and I was like, can I triangulate which fucking Applebee's this is? Because he also <laughs> mentions like the name of a bank that was nearby. And there was like literally only one option in the city that had like an Applebee's <laughs> and that name of bank nearby. And so like, I'm trying to keep it vague. Cause like, I don't want to put out too many details about like exact location, but I was like sure. able to narrow it down pretty reasonably to the filming location, <laughs> which I'm sure was also publicized somewhere that I just don't know where to look. That would have made it a lot easier for me to figure out where he was. But also like, I am an adult and I understand how fucking wrong it is to like just show up when there's someone famous somewhere like trying to do their job. Yeah. So I would like never, never do it. But there was a part of me that was like, I wonder if I can find out where they are. Um, Totally realize how wrong it is. Katie is is not looking at the camera right now. She's distinctly (laughs) looking like away from the camera. Um, Are you talking about the time you went to a Mike Stud concert because Tyler Sagan might have been there? (laughs) Wow, you're putting me right on blast. We can edit this part out. Wow. Wow. I thought of that because Tyler Sagan posted something on the internet the other day about being at a Mike Stud concert again. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I did actually, I I liked Mike Stud at the time and he was at the concert. So I was not even wrong. I actually did really like Mike Stud at the time too. So like I can't even pretend that I wouldn't have gone with you if I hadn't been in Dallas. Thank you, thank you. Also, he just goes by Mike now, which I feel like is yeah, and I done hard. Yeah, the music that he puts out now, I'm like not at all interested in too, and the, like the brand that he's created, I'm not at all interested in. Yeah, but like yeah. the music back then, I was I was jamming to it for, oh, sure. for sure. He was like I did, in my I will top admit five that Spotify. I liked him. Oh wow, I will admit I liked him primarily primarily because of his um, proximity to Tyler Second, but I did really enjoy it too. But yeah, it, it's just like with a lot of artists. And especially one whose focus has always, like, I mean, Mike's focus has always been on, like, the journey. For mm-hmm. his stuff to change so drastically doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, we completely digress. I don't, anyway. Honestly, I think that's maybe our first major digression of the episode, which is pretty impressive by our standards. So. It is. We And this is, like, a long one. We have actually made it um, an hour and 27 minutes unedited time into this episode before we digressed. I know. It's pretty impressive. I honestly, a couple of times I've been like, well, if we keep going, we could feasibly split this into two episodes. I don't know that we need to, but I feel like the option is there. Um, right. Because we still have some wrap-up stuff for sure to get to. Yeah. I was going to say, we haven't touched on the Anthropocene Reviewed, which we're not, again, like, we're not really going to touch on. It is a nonfiction book mm-hmm. where John takes what was originally, I believe, a podcast, and then he decided to make it into the book, and he reviews, like, life experiences or locations through the lens of, like, a review, and it was sort of 
driven by the pandemic and all the things we went through during the early days of the pandemic. And both Katie and I read it. We really liked it, but it doesn't fit. Didn't you like it? Yeah, no, I did. I was going to say, um, I put it on my top five of the year, I think. I believe Um, you did. And so we we kind of hashed out a lot more of Anthropocene Reviewed in our yearly wrap-up. Yeah, I I think it's... I could not recommend it more highly. I just think it's, you know, we're we're more doing an analysis of, like, his fictional work. So I think it's, like, a little bit out of place. But, like, please read it. You will love it. Yeah, for sure. Like, read it. But we're just not going to spend time on it because it's not relevant to the discussion we're having. Except that he did write it in 2021. So then I did not read Let It Snow, Three Holiday Romances, nor have I seen the Netflix film. Yeah, so that is one of, he was in like a little, I don't know if you would call it an anthology, but it was a book full of three little stories. And I did read it at the time, and I don't remember anything about it. And I also have watched the Netflix film, and I don't remember anything about it. But it was just a cute, um, it was like a three little interconnected novellas even maybe um, where he wrote one and Maureen Johnson, who is another one of my faves wrote one. And then Lauren Miracle uh, wrote the third and I don't know her. Um, right. As much, but it was very cute. It was just a little like cozy Christmassy love story trilogy. Um, and then he also has, he co-wrote a book in 2010 called Will Grayson, Will Grayson, um, with the author David Levithan, who I also don't know outside of this, um, which I have read. And it's basically about two characters who are both named Will Grayson. Um, and John Green wrote all the perspectives from one Will Grayson, and David Levithan wrote all the perspectives from the other Will Grayson. And um, I was like, I read it again back in like high school probably and I don't really remember much about it except the thing that I remembered that stuck really clearly in my brain is that Tiny Dancer plays a role somehow and so I was reading the um the synopsis and it was about hang on where did it go I really like the concept of that like one author writing all of one Will Grayson's and one author writing the others though I did not read it I did just look up Lauren Miracle, and she wrote the TTYL, TTFN, and later uh, Gator books. So I didn't... I've seen those. I didn't necessarily... I know I read the first two. I don't know how much I stuck with them. They clearly didn't, like, stick in my brain. But I'm just... At that time, she would have been a much bigger, like, YA author. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. Okay, so the thing that stuck out to me when I was reading the synopsis on Wikipedia is that... So one of the Will Grayson's... His best friend is Tiny Cooper, described as the world's largest person who is really, really gay and the world's gayest person who is really, really large. Um, And that line struck me as like so classically John Green. Um, And then I was proven correct that that is the perspective that John Green wrote. Um, But so Tiny Cooper is writing a musical about his life called Tiny Cooper, Tiny Dancer, um, which is why I remember Tiny Dancer so strongly. But uh, yeah, his his Will Grayson like really wants to be unnoticed, but he can't be unnoticed when he has um, a huge flamboyant best friend who's writing a musical about his life. That's kind of fun. I'm not gonna lie. Maybe I'll read it. I don't know. Uh, I remember it being cute. I likely won't reread it unless I just like stumble upon it. But 
Cool. It might be something I keep in my back pocket as like a YA novel I know is not going to take up a lot of my time and will hopefully jumpstart me reading other things on my list. Um, so with that, I think we've gone through everything he has written. So do we want to get into like some of the theme stuff that we have not yet touched on? Yeah, so we obviously touched again, touched on quirky interests and the manic pixie dream girl ad nauseum, but um, there are lots of other like themes or motifs that show up a lot in his work. Um, one of which being road trips. Um, primarily, I think just in paper towns and also an abundance of Catherines. I don't think there were any other road trips. I mean, I think in like in um, looking for Alaska, they take like a road trip back to the Colonel's like hometown, but it's not like a big road trip. Yeah, and I guess you like it depends on what you consider a road trip. Like in the Fault in Our Stars, they do go to Amsterdam. I think that's less classic, like pile in a car and hit the road. But um, it is I like think a, it is... it's a journey that they go on. Which if that's Certainly. what the theme could be, maybe distilled to like journeys, physical journeys, yeah. as well as emotional journeys. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. I do think it's most interesting to just just juxtapose um, Paper Towns and An Abundance of Catherines because they're two road trips with like very different purposes in that, I mean, basically that Paper Towns has a purpose to the road trip and um, An Abundance of Catherines is more just like, we don't know what to do. Like, let's just drive until we find something interesting. Yeah. And I mean, in Paper Towns, it's like a frenetic pace where, you know, mm-hmm. radar is like, we have to drive at exactly 77 miles an hour or we'll never make it in time. Yeah, which I thought was a very fun um, device. Yes. And the it makes for very fun scenes where they're like sprinting into a BP and like throwing snacks on the counter. Mm-hmm. It was um, a really I, fun scene in the movie. I, for one, am for quick stops. Um, I would never <laughs> time them that quickly, but like, I'm like, you get in, you get out. My boyfriend, on the other hand, he, like, is perusing all the candy options. (laughs) Nothing is in an efficient order. All of that. And I'm just like, we are wasting so much time and we don't have a timeline. But what are we doing? Yeah. I mainly go pretty quick on a road at a stop unless we're stopping at a Bucky's, in which case I'm going to take my sweet time. Okay. So Kentucky got a Bucky's. (gasps) <gasps> what so that it's, is it's the like, most exciting thing ever yeah so it's like not close to here but we are going to the lake in two weeks and i'm not sure that johnny has ever been to a bucky's and i'm like i have planned for the fact that we are going to spend a long time in the bucky's <laughs> because i know like he's going to fucking love this gigantic like truck stop where he can spend time like shopping so seriously there's so many fucking options also mm-hmm. i'm really hoping that they nail the breakfast taco thing mm-hmm because, I mean, obviously, nobody does breakfast tacos quite like Texas. Um, <laughs> Truly. And, um, you gotta hope that, like, it's standardized so they'll know how to do it right. Um, right, that they, like, they, like, learned a little bit from, like, the fact that Bucky's are in Texas. Because I'm like, man, I, like, if we're driving down there, I could really, I could really go for some, like, breakfast tacos. Or, honestly, any food from a Bucky's. It's, it's, in my few experiences with Bucky's, um... The food was way better than, like, a fucking Love's or a Speedway or whatever. Yeah, the food's so good. I always, when I stop at Bucky's, I always get either a brisket sandwich or a pulled pork sandwich. Um, they have really good jerky. Um, obviously, they have really good, like, Bucky Nuggets or Bucky Nuggies. And they do, they do like, the roasted um, nuts, which I love. 
I love Bucky's. Yeah. If you're anyway. not familiar with Bucky's, by the way, uh, it's basically just a big gas station, but also a cult. Yes. <laughs> um, I do plan on trying to convince him to buy the Bucky's swim shorts if they have them there. Yes, you absolutely yeah. should. So, anyway, I like. I'm really excited because it is so out of the way, except for the fact that we're traveling directly that way, and I'm like, we are stopping, and I have already accounted for that in our like arrival time to the lake is that we will be spending a significant amount of time at Bucky's. So, um, now anyway, road trips, um, (laughs) (laughs) there are a few other things which I think are common in a lot of YA novels, obviously like coming of age, grief and like finding hope and meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that coming of age, like all of John Green's novels, I think are coming of age novels, like pretty explicitly. Um, and I think he does it really well. And I think kind of the way he has his characters come of age is through either, um, is through grief and then finding the hope and meaning on the other side of grief. And I think you see that in looking for Alaska with Alaska's death, um, to, to some extent in in an abundance of Catherine's with like the, the grief of his relationship, um, paper towns with losing Margot and having to figure out what that means for him. Obviously, very literal grief in The Fault in Our Stars because of cancer and dying. Um, and I don't know as much about Turtles All the Way Down with Grief. Um, maybe just like losing innocence of like a friendship and then also like the billionaire's son does lose his dad and so there is a death there. Um, losing her first relationship because they just kind of can't make it work after a while. Um, but yeah, it's basically all, all of the novels are about losing something really significant to you and having to figure out how to go on. Right. So yeah, it, I mean, I, those are all things in there and I, I think he does them well. I think they're very real. And I think the way that you've put this on the last bullet, it's YA, but not sterile kind of sums up all of that too, is that like, they all, I this may not be what you mean, but this is what I see from it. But, like, they all get to feel things. They all they all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And they all deal with them. And then also, um, yeah, they do get to have, like... These aren't super explicit novels. They're just, like, real novels about co- coming of age, growing up, like, going to parties. Um, I feel like I don't remember Looking for Alaska being as, like, openly as about sex as some of the stuff in Paper Towns was where, like, the boys are talking to each other about, like, hooking up and stuff. Um, but, um, like... I mean, I think there was some some pretty explicit stuff in Looking for Alaska. And I, I actually wrote this bullet while we were talking back about Looking for Alaska, but it's very much, like, you know, the, it's teens that, like, do go to parties. They do make mistakes. They do smoke and drink and, like, experiment with each other. Um, not in a way that's, like, explicit or gross, but just in a way that's very, like true to a lot of kids experiences at that age i think yeah he's not shying away from the fact that like teenagers are going to do this and he's also not doing it in like a way that is i don't want to say over the top because i know there's people out there who have experiences that are what i would consider as over the top for mm-hmm. like being teens but he he's just doing it in a way that doesn't shy away from the reality of it without making it into like the entire idea of the novel or something like that. For sure. And he also, he's not at all like glorifying it. He's just presenting it. I I just think he does, he strikes a really good balance of like, kids do this, you know, it's real, but like, it's not like 
terrible. Like it's just part of the the process of growing up. Like I was thinking about, um, I would go to band camp every summer as a high schooler. And again, I'm like the most, I was like the most goody goody two shoes of all time, but I still remember like there was a lot of flirting. There was like making out in corners. Like there was a lot of like over the clothes touching. Like there was just a lot of stuff that you do when you're that age, when you're experimenting with like people you feel safe with um, in an environment that you feel safe in, hopefully, you know, I, I think there are a lot of teens out there that do that or are forced into doing that in, in environments they don't feel as safe in. But like, there's something really, that was really special about that time in your life when you were figuring your shit out. I had the added layer of Catholicism. So like, I, <laughs> my experience was probably like a little bit different, but I, I do understand what you're saying, where like, it, it was a time of like, weirdness, but also like, excitement and and yeah it it does seem to be captured in these books better than in other books that I've read though I do have to admit that like I think there are a lot of really good YA novels that we've read in the past couple years but we read them for the first time as adults so those some of those experiences didn't resonate in the same way that some of these books we read when younger probably did and so it's harder for us to pick those moments out and have it something to say on them because it's not as relevant to us as adults who like aren't going through that period anymore and are removed from some of the the being unsure part of discovering yourself Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely okay well you you added this section at the bottom Mm -hmm. um is john green that bad would you you expand upon that yeah everything is capitalized in this because it's it's like is he that section title yeah, he has, like, there has been a lot of criticism ag- against John Green for some of the things that he's written, and we, we've we touched on some of those, and some of them, as pointed out, are, like, obviously valid, using the Arsler, having his characters mm-hmm. kiss in, like, a historical house where horrific <laughs> atrocities were committed. Um, he's also been criticized as deeply established for the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing. Mm-hmm. Um... And the general formulaic nature of of a lot of his plots. And then also the lack of diversity. And so I think there are some some valid criticisms. And then I think there's also just, like, some people missing the... Like, one of the things I put in here is, like, the cringe factor. And I think that that... The cringe factor is coming some from people missing the point. Like I said earlier, where it's, Mm -hmm. like, teens just are cringy. Like, we all had a cringe era. Okay? Yeah. We're seeing the cringe era be, like, highlighted on TikTok recently, and I think it's kind of funny, but it just, it is. And then some of the things that he says or does, they are dated, and that contributes to our cringe factor, because we're like, oh, God. But if he were to rewrite these novels in a modern setting with, like, things that aren't considered cringe yet or chuggy or whatever, like, Mm -hmm. you might not feel the same about those things. And so I, I don't know that that's, like, a valid criticism. It comes back, I harp on this with Gossip Girl all the time, people criticize gossip girl for being so of its time and it's like well yeah it was and that was like part of the novel that doesn't make it bad now or doesn't actually make it cringy it just means you're not enjoying it in the same context Mm -hmm. so i I, this this section is not super thought out i'm not gonna lie because i don't necessarily think that all of this criticism has like legs i will Mm -hmm. admit that his his some of the criticism about his lack of diversity for like 
LGBTQ characters does. But I also want to point out that publishing in 2005 was an entirely different landscape than publishing in uh, like 2019. And people, it's the same way with like, you know, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they always say Willow, right, was supposed to be Mm -hmm. bisexual. And then they were like told that they could not air that on network. Like, mm-hmm. that would not be allowed. And that's how much of a factor was that in some of this writing? Like, you want to get published. I mean, we have thoughts about the publishing industry all fucking day. We sure do. But, like, how much of that is you having to play the game? And how much of that is that he genuinely didn't want to include queer characters? I don't mm-hmm. know that we'll ever... I don't know that he's been asked that question. I haven't read enough interviews to know. Or if it's just, you know, people are like, well... Now, there's so many good queer books. Why are we still reading these books? That's a personal question, guys. Yeah, and I will say, um, you know, obviously as, you know, cis white ladies, we're not really able to be like the arbiters of good diversity or good representation. I will say that from my perspective, though, I actually was like pleasantly surprised at how much representation and diversity he did have in some of his books. Um just because I, I, like, all the main characters are white, and I think that you had a really good call out with LGBTQ, because there really aren't any queer characters that I can think of other than the best friend in Will Grayson, Will Grayson. Um, And I think, you know, I remember being delighted by Tiny Cooper, but, like, I don't remember, or I would not have been aware of, like, whether or not that was good or bad representation. But, like, in, um, in, looking for Alaska, like one of the best friends, like kind of the tertiary best friend, but he um, is, I think, Japanese. Um, In An Abundance of Catherines, the best friend is Muslim. Um, And there's actually, there's like a lot of interaction, even in like the first quarter of the book that I reread with um, Hassan and like his family and like his beliefs. Um, And then, you know, obviously Radar in Paper Town. So I feel like for the time, he was doing a pretty good job of including diversity. I I don't want to like make excuses for him. And again, you know, as a white lady, I'm not like the arbiter of this in any way, but like, I just remember being pleasantly surprised as I was reading that like, oh, like it's not just all white characters. Yeah. I mean, I did steer the conversation towards like queer characters mostly because that's something that we're able to speak on a little bit more directly. (laughs) Um, But then, yeah, I think the main criticism is that the char- the main characters tend to all be white. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's... I, I know there's, like, there's a lot of discourse, and I don't want to say that I agree with either... Like, I'm not trying to input my opinion on this discourse because it's not my place to say it, but there's a lot that says, like, you know, sometimes it's like, well, you should write what you know, and then it's like, well, if you only write what you know, then you're only going to write non-diverse things if you only had non-diverse experiences... Um, mm-hmm. and it, it's a whole mire and there is also, as always, the historical context. Like, we know the landscape of publishing is changing um, mm-hmm. way too slowly. Way too slowly. Of course. But you you can't erase things from their historical context when you are are looking at these things, unfortunately. Because we yeah. shouldn't have to, like, as you said, make excuses. But there is historical context. Oh, God, I'm calling 2005 historical. <laughs> oh we're old we're old it's fine Uh, yeah there's like some things that need to be taken into account and again we are not the arbiter of 
of appropriate diversity. And I actually do think that that criticism does hold true. I'm just mm -hmm. mentioning that this is not just a one factor story. And also, again, it is a personal decision. If you don't want to read these books because you want more diversity, don't read them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's fair. I also think it's worth pointing out that um, John Green is somebody, somebody that I would consider to operate in good faith. And I think that he does a lot of work to improve upon his like past weaknesses. Um, so even like, I don't remember if there was any like explicit um, like background given for characters in terms of like their races or their diversity in Turtles All the Way Down. But the movie that's being produced right now has a Latina lead as Aza, which I think is amazing. Um, and John Green has shown a lot of support for. So, you know, he is he is growing you know maybe slower than some people would like which is a fair criticism um but i i am intend to get i am wow words i am inclined to give him a lot of benefit of the doubt because i think that he operates in such good faith yes um and so uh the colonel in looking for alaska in the hulu miniseries was played by a black actor as well mm. So yeah, that, and I, don't, I don't remember if that was explicit yeah. or not. In, in I the just novel. looked it up, and it appears that the original writing, he was not a black character. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the miniseries, they made that decision. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's just a lot of a lot to go. And like I said, I think that that's a valid criticism that you're allowed to make. Absolutely, but it sure. just has context. And I then I like I think the cringe factor criticism. Not valid. <laughs> yeah, agreed. In my opinion. But, like, some of it absolutely is. And I think if we, if I were to have read Turtles All the Way Down back to back with one of his earlier novels, I, you know what? His writing, probably, I would say there, there are very valid criticisms to be made of his writing early on. But mm -hmm. I, so, in conclusion, he got a lot of really bad. There was definitely a time where it was like, uh, like John Green novels are bad because they're man of the girl trendy to hate him for a while even though yes. he's so pure i think that's what it is it, it got trendy to hate him in the like not like other girls spirit or mm -hmm. whatever and and so like a lot of the stuff that i think of as criticism is really stemming from that era um and i think it was all just a collective like just i don't know what word i want to use there Tr trend i don't know yeah um where it was like, well, this is he he sucks, and it was a misunderstanding of it, and it was also a, a surface level sort of situation. And so, in conclusion, I don't think John Green is that bad. I think everybody could be better in some in aspects of their life and their their content creation and all of that. And he's not immune mm -hmm. to having made mistakes, but I don't think that the like hate John Green era holds any water. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. I like John Green. I like him a lot as a person. I think he works really hard to do good in the world, which I think is like the most important thing. Um, and I really like his writing and I think I'm excited to see, you know, whatever he does next. Yeah, it was very fun to reread this book. And like I said, I will probably, I will probably read An Abundance of Catherine's, even though I did not <laughs> manage to finish it in time for this recording. Yeah, I'll um, definitely finish it. I just was not going to finish it in one sitting yesterday. So Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it is 
like I I think they're good. I think that they to me they capture one of the really good ways of using like what would I guess be like contemporary fiction, but for YA. Mm-hmm. Um, because YA doesn't get broken down in the same way. No, because in what that, way. that there's only young adults just get one thing, and it's just young adult novels. No, no, they they do they have started breaking out YA fantasy as like a specific oh. like. But I don't think that they've broken out like the rest of the fiction genres the same way like adult fiction genres get broken into. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I I think that might just be because for a long time. It wasn't cool to create content for teens. Yeah. Particularly teen girls. Just another soapbox mm-hmm. we're saving. Yeah, it's never it's never cool to be or create content for teen girls because misogyny. Right. On the other hand, we think it is awesome to create content for teen girls. And even as adults, we regularly consume it because... We are right. And we should say it. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading in between the lines Never know what we might find Yeah, it could be magic Oh, 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 oh. Glasses is hosted by Bailey Utrecht and me, Katie Phillips Our logo is by Baby Truth Collection And our theme song is by Anna Voss I just saw that Anna Voss is going on tour this fall So you should definitely look her up We'll see you in a couple of weeks <laughs>